Hi, I'm Jonathan Stroud. Welcome to the Freedom to Think podcast, giving you a little bit of time and space to explore your imagination. So here I am, sitting at my desk with my author hat on, working on a new novel. And it's going well, but it's at that stage where I don't yet quite know how the story is going to develop. I know certain things about it, and every day I'm discovering more, but most of it is still hidden. It's a bit like I'm walking through mist, and I can see vague shapes ahead of me, but until I get to them, I won't know exactly what they are, or even if they're any good. Which is exciting, but also a bit scary. There's certainly plenty of work to do. And since it's quite a solitary business, all this scribbling away, I thought I'd take some time out and go chat to my friend S.F. Saeed, who also knows a bit about the process of writing. S.F. is the author of three amazing children's books. The award-winning Varjak Poor, about a young cat who learns the martial arts of his ancestors in order to survive in a dangerous city. Its dramatic sequel, The Outlaw Varjak Poor, and the majestic and beautiful science fiction epic Phoenix, in which a boy both saves the universe and uncovers his own secret connection to the stars. SF's also a meticulous writer, who's not afraid of taking time over his work. We met up at Senate House, part of the University of London. Now, I should say that we started chatting in some very comfy chairs in what appeared to be a peaceful corridor, but a few minutes later, some doors opened and about a thousand people poured out and started having very loud cups of tea right by us, so we had to decamp to a lonely stairwell somewhere else. Which means you might notice a change in ambience a short way through the conversation, but don't worry, the quality of SF's insights remains unaffected. Anyway, we began our chat by discussing what he's up to now. Right, here we are um, in Senate House, and I'm very excited to have um, SF Said with me, and uh, we're going to have a chat about uh, about writing and about books. So, um, nice to see you, SF. You, you well? Everything not, good? Not too bad, thanks, Jonathan. Working away on a, a new project, as I have been for the last six years. The same project for the last six years? It's the same and yet different. Um, it's a sequel... Uh, it's a series of books about parallel worlds, um, and I started by writing a story called Tiger that was set in a parallel world. After two and a half years of work on that, I realised that this book was part of the sequence and it was really book two in the sequence. So I had to put aside two and a half years of work to write book one, uh, which I've been oh. doing for the last three and a half years. I'm now three and a half years into book one of Tiger. Very, very excited about it. I think this is the best thing I've written so far by quite a long way. It feels like a really big step up. But because it is a sequence about parallel worlds, it's it's big, it's complicated. Uh, so it's taking quite a long time, um, but not quite as long as it looks. It looks like I've been working on one book for six years, but actually there are drafts of two different books and lots and lots of material for further down the line. The you, you see several more books uh, coming in the sequence. So how, how many do you, or can you tell yet? Well, as I say, it's about parallel worlds and specifically this idea we now have from quantum physics that there could be an infinite number of parallel worlds. So in theory, there could be an infinite number of books in the well, sequence. I look forward to this. I just hope it doesn't take an infinite amount of time to write them. But uh, no, realistically, um, I'm really focusing on books one and two. Uh, I have ideas for a number more. I, I, I wouldn't like to put a number on it. The thing I would probably like to compare it to although obviously it's nothing like the same 
standard is uh, perhaps Ursula Le Guin's Earthsea books or Hainish sequence where she sort of had an idea of of a world, a universe if you like, in which she could set many stories and then whenever she had an idea that fit into that universe she would write a new one and whether that was a novel or a short story or even a poem was neither here nor there to her the thing that was exciting was exploring her universe through this story that she was interested in at the time so I think the thing with Tiger is uh, whenever I have a story that would fit into Tiger, then I can, I can, I can just run with it. So for the rest of your life, you you have this um, go-to uh, world or, or 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 concept that you can you possibly can return to. Possibly, I mean, it's not a linear series. It's not a case of a story that begins in book one uh, and then in book two it picks up where book one ends chronologically. Right. You have another adventure, and then book three you know deepens and you know like uh i think most series fiction is, is like that in some way isn't it there's there's a there's a linearness yeah, to it yeah um, traditionally yeah whereas no this I, I would describe it rather than a linear sequence it's really a fractal sequence uh so oh, any, <laughs> any 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 you could you could in theory start anywhere but really book one is the best place to start and then the more you read i think uh, the more it will expand in all directions. Um, we'll see if that works or not, but that's the concept anyway. The, 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 but the curious thing is, as as the creator of it, you you yourself didn't start uh, at book number one. You you you, you had to find your own uh, keys to the door, and so actually you started in a certain place and then looped back to to somewhere else. Um, which is because it's a funny thing about creating stuff, isn't it? You 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 don't tend to start at the beginning, or, or at least not not necessarily. It comes uh, it, it comes in in different in different forms. You you, you enter the, the building from the back back entrance sometimes. I think creativity is is deeply mysterious, and uh, the one thing I know about it at this point in my life is that whatever works, do that, and that's going to be different on different projects for a writer, and it will be different between different writers. Uh, you have to find whatever it is that gets you to your best work, whatever that is. So all your books, SF, have an exciting gestation. I was reading that, that Varjak Paul, the original one, went through is it 17 drafts. What does that mean? Then? Does it actually mean 17 complete um, versions, or does it mean that you know, sixteen and fifteen are just the same, apart from a tweak, uh, tweak here? <laughs> how, how how different are they? They're different. Uh, to to me, I think a draft is a substantial unit of work at the end of which the thing is different. When I was doing well, Jack Paul, my drafts were typically taking two three months, so it was about you know two three months of work. Different drafts are different. So for me, a first draft that's something I handwrite. Um, I like to have fun on a first draft and to feel this is something slightly magical, not quite like ordinary life. So I like to use a nice fountain pen with interestingly oh, coloured ink. Oh, essential. Oh, yes. Uh, good paper, you know. Um, all that just helps create this feeling that this is something a bit special. And I also, on a first draft, give myself an extremely achievable target. So for me, that's four sides of A4 a day. If I can produce four sides of A4 in a day, that's a good day. And uh, actually, four sides of A4, it's only about 
a thousand words with yeah, my handwriting. Yeah. And I can do that in an hour if I'm feeling good. And I'm then free in my mind to do whatever I want for the rest of the day. So that's a great incentive. However, however, um, what I often want to do, having done full sides, is to carry on exploring the story further. And uh, so by giving myself something as easy as four sides, I'll often end up writing eight, ten, twelve, sixteen. Oh, that's, that's a good day. That doesn't mean I can write less tomorrow. No. I must always do four yes. minimum every day. Oh, no, that's good psychology. And I find if I do that, the momentum is such that within actually a month or two, you have a first draft. Obviously, everything in it is wrong. It's terrible. <laughs> but there's, a, there's something. And I think you can work with something. If you try and make something brilliant in one go, my experience is yeah. you make nothing. You end up freezing and you have absolutely nothing to show for it uh, because... The attempt to create perfection in one go is deeply inhibiting. Um, I think, let yourself off the hook. On a first draft, uh, just enjoy creating stuff. Be free to create stuff. And, uh, you know, wow. and, and so I never, I never ask myself on a first draft, is this any good? Uh, does it make sense? Will anyone ever read it? I just want to enjoy it. So yeah. on the first draft, I just explore the story, tell myself the story. I don't even like to know too much about it before I begin. Well, I, I was, really I was going to ask you that, whether or not um, at the beginning of the, of the outset of that first draft, mm. whether you have more than just a, a glimmering of what the story is. Do you, do you have a structure at this no, point? No, you just no. throw yourself in. Yeah. Do you start at the beginning? You say, yep. um, here, here, here's a yep. cat. Once upon a time, there's a yep. kitten, and mm-hmm. he, he, this, is his, this is his story, and you start telling it. Pretty much. Um, I think I, I generally, all my books have started with an idea of a character with some kind of problem and a vague idea of how this is going to resolve generally with them saving the day in some way. And, uh, and that's pretty much it. You know, all the other stuff kind of gets worked out on the way and I enjoy and perhaps need the energy of discovery to keep me going through what I think yeah. is the hardest part of writing, which is that first draft, because there you are staring into the void. You have nothing. When you begin a first draft blank sheets of paper that is the hardest thing in the world yeah and uh so i feel if i can get something there however terrible it might be at least i can then work with it and make something terrible better until eventually i have something good and then perhaps if i keep going long enough <laughs> something great that i'm really really excited by and, and within a draft uh, you know, there, there are different scenes have different lines don't they there might be there might be some scene which you nail straight off or at least you get the bulk of it the core of it yeah. you, you write it and you think this is this is good often it's the it's the it's these are the bits that aren't aren't quite so interesting that i find hardest to produce somehow i think for me uh, almost always it's the transitions that just take the longest yeah. and they're yeah. really not that interesting and you know as you say they you know but they they often I find it quite difficult to... Re- well, it's a really good, juicy, dramatic scene. You yeah. sort of, you know, you can get excited by that. And it, it can, whereas getting characters from A to B or from, you know, this month to that month, doing that elegantly uh, and neatly, mm, and, mm. you know, uh, and then still for it to be exciting in some way, it's really quite hard, you know. It's basically procedural. So in the end, I try and have as little of that as possible. I end up sort of trying this and that and the other in the end I hackled my sword I was going to say that often it's a question of winnowing it down isn't it because you you, you write the extra stuff and then you think it's not necessary and it slows the flow and it's incredible cut it out cut it out cut it out it's the, the editing hand
Let's face it, the truth about books, as much as we might believe ourselves to be, you know, creating the thing, we're not. Actually, we are enabling readers to create the thing for themselves in their own heads. That's what we are doing. We're giving them some material with which right. they, they can work. And actually, the book is nothing until a reader has done that for themselves. So the stock of memory and imagination in each individual reader is different. So when we say a, a cat is trying to survive in a city, everybody listening to this podcast yes. is seeing a different yes. cat in their mind yes. in a different city. Yes. And that's amazing and magical and one of the wonderful things about being human. And books do that on a large scale, uh, I think. So, yes, as the writer, you want to have all the stuff that you think is fantastic and brilliant, but you have to accept, in the end, that you have to get out of the way. Once you're done with it, it's not your book anymore, it's the reader's book. It's, um, it's a very refreshing thing as you uh, editing and self-editing and stripping things down, um, but it requires a lot of patience, doesn't it? I mean, that's the thing that, uh, that gets me with your, with your mode of, of, of work, that you will, you're prepared to put yourself through really ha- quite a long period of time to get the book that you, you want. So you're very kind to yourself in the first draft. You're giving yourself a nice pen to hold and lo- <laughs> lovely, lovely sort of sensual approach to it. But um, then, you're going to, then you get ever more rigorous. You're, you're, you become more monastic and, um, as, as you go until eventually you're, you're, you're really being quite, um, quite brutal with yourself, aren't you? Just, just cutting and, and changing and not, not giving it to your editor until, uh, until you're happy with it. Well, that's all true, but at that point, I give it to my editor, and then he's not happy with it. So, you know, I've, I've done everything I can. I think this is great. So Phoenix, after four years of working on Phoenix, I felt it was in pretty good shape. I gave it to a bunch of people to read. They were all very excited by it. And these were people who work in publishing. You know, they were like, this is terrific, publish now. Terrific. I gave it to my editor, the brilliant David Fickling, and he said, this is unpublishable. A what? Not unpublishable, (laughs) David, I'm sorry. I'm I'm sure I can improve it. No, he said, it's unpublishable. What was wrong with it? What was was his main... It wasn't actually that anything was wrong with it. It just wasn't as good as it could be. And David's belief, and I have come to share this belief, is that if you're going to put a book out into the world, Mm. then you really need to make it as good as it can possibly be. Otherwise, why bother? Um, it goes back to your hopes as a reader. Every time you buy a book, I think you're secretly hoping this could be one of the greats, you know, this could be yeah, one yeah. that lives with you forever. Yeah. And, you know, um, and that's what... It's a high-stakes game, isn't it? That's really what you want. That's, that's what you want, isn't it? Otherwise, why would you be doing it? I, I don't know, you know, you, you might as well do something that pays properly and is less stressful if, <laughs> if, if that wasn't what you were trying to do. So, I don't know, it's what I'm trying to do anyway. My... Ambition is to try and make really great stuff. Um, whether I succeed or not, who knows? The point is, that's the objective. But yeah, I think aim high. Philip Pullman says this um, that to him, every time he's working on a book, what he wants is for it to be firstly the very, very best thing he has ever written, and secondly, the very, very best thing that anybody has ever written. <laughs> and he's probably got quite close to that. Uh, you know, I think for my money, Northern Lights and Subtle Knife pretty close to the best things anybody's ever written so you know if you believe that books are important yeah if you believe that books are things with the power to touch and move and enthrall and uh, perhaps open people's mm. minds mm. and perspective you know why would you not put everything you've got into a book how do you manage to g yourself up have you got other means of actually keeping your own energy levels up 
I think in the end what sustains me is the process of writing itself. That's really what sustains me. I've become a lot more process-oriented rather than goal-oriented. And I used to hear people talking about this when I started out. I think, oh, that's ridiculous. Surely it's all about the goal, isn't it? And uh, that's kind of perhaps a young a young person's perspective. Now, as a somewhat older person, I feel, no, you know what? You know, when the book is done, you're only going to have to do another book, and when that's done, you're only going to have to do another (laughs) one after that. So, really, you're going to be spending all your time working on a book or another. Um, So, what's really important is you and your process. You have to be at peace with that, and you have to be deriving something from that itself without necessarily a goal ever being realised. So, to me... As I say, um, I have targets. A bare minimum of three hours a day working on a book. Uh, I think that is the bare minimum I can Mm. justify Mm. my existence with. If I I show up, I do three hours of work, I feel my existence is justified. If I do four hours, that's better. Because I think something interesting happens around four hours. If you spend four hours of your day really focused on something... I believe that's the threshold at which your unconscious really gets involved. Yeah, which you do need, don't you? Because totally. you, 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 you can be as structurally minded as you yeah. like and as, and as sort of rational and as, mm. and as, and as sort of brain-focused as you want, but ultimately sometimes it just comes out of nowhere, doesn't it? These, Absolutely. These inspirations yeah. that actually make the book um, sing, they, they give it that, that life, that spark. No, the, the really good stuff doesn't come out of the conscious brain at all it comes from some weird place inside yeah, you yeah. that only really gets involved I think at around four hours a day and that's when you begin <laughs> that's when you begin to dream about it that's when you begin to you know you're off having a run and in the middle of the run you weren't even thinking about it but suddenly this thing crystallises in your mind and you're like oh of course the aliens must be like this and then you just can't wait to get home to write the thing down uh, if I do more than four hours which I now think of as really being a double session take the daily total up to five or six hours I feel that's really good and actually if I can just do that show up and put in six hours of actual writing I feel really good about myself and actually it's a reward enough in itself you've justified your 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 existence in the world for another day haven't you yeah I feel like that's fine what you're describing to me is really quite a quite a rigorous sense of self-discipline which an author requires in order to get any kind of significant project done. Yeah. Um, I, this is very, very different to how I approached things when I was starting out. This is something I've had to learn for myself. And I was not someone very good at self-discipline. Um, I, would, I remember when I was writing The Outlaw of Paul, my second book, yeah. um, I was really struggling with that one. And I would typically procrastinate and procrastinate and then it would get to midnight and I still hadn't done anything. And then I think, oh, I have to do something. So I'd sit down and do an hour, but it really wouldn't be very good. Uh, and I think the older you get, the more you realise that time is finite. And um, I perhaps started out thinking maybe I could be somebody like Jacqueline Wilson and write 110 books. I certainly wanted to be a book a year author. Uh, my average... Varjak Paul, five years. Outlaw, three years. Phoenix, seven years. 
Tiger currently six and counting. We're looking at an average of around five years a book. I, I think that there is a moral dimension in it for you because uh, it's a theme that comes out in all your books. There's the, the battle in all your books between the sort of the principle of creativity, of, of going out into the world and connecting with everything and um, bringing life and light to things. And there's the other principle, the sort of the negation of that, which is sort of nothingness, the kind of a void. Nothing is of, it, of any importance. Mm. And, and you, um, in, I mean, Phoenix, it, it's, the, it's the most sort of dramatic uh, depiction of that. But it's in Vajapur as well. And all your heroes have to sort of figure out a way of expressing themselves, of, of linking up with others, of, of making something of, them, of themselves. That's so um, interesting. I'd not really thought of it like that before, but, I mean, as you're saying that, that's very, very much what's going on in Thailand. As well, oh, so, <laughs> so perhaps you've, you've put your finger on something there. Um, yeah, I suppose I am very interested in uh, how people or characters more broadly might come to self-realization mm. or expression, and particularly connection. I think connection with, yes. with others is hugely yeah. important. And um, that's what books. Is. I mean, you, as you, as you, yes. expre- you, you yeah. already expressed it. That, that's, yeah. that's what a book is. You you write it, and then someone else is going mm. to take it and mm. turn it into something mm. unique to them. Their own thing. Yeah, I love that. That to me, there is a community of writers and readers. You know, and we're all in it together and uh, I kind of love that it's know. like the dark matter connections in, um, in Phoenix isn't it um, you, oh, you don't see nice. you, don't, you don't see it the invisible but, but we all you know your, your reader in um, yeah. Kuala Lumpur or somewhere yeah. is going to be is, yeah. is connected to you um, by, your, by your text it's an extraordinary thing that isn't it to think um, and it's something that we I mean we don't necessarily see that much but I think we see it a bit more now in the in the social media oh, age yeah, than so we true. used to before. Yeah, that's, that's extraordinary, isn't it? Really extraordinary. I mean, I, I'm in some ways a failed poet and a failed musician. Uh, I think in my teens, I kind of wanted to be a rock star. I used to write a lot of songs and, and poems and stuff. I just I wasn't that good. Um, but I still love the kind of patterning that I see in poetry and in music. Uh, and I try and bring as much right. of that as I can into the prose uh, and in, into the structures of books and so on. With Phoenix, it was very, very difficult because it's such a big book. At, at a certain point... Phoenix was about 130,000 words long. Varjapur, to give you a comparison, 35,000. Yeah, so, big, so it, big, was a, it, was big, a, it was a real increase, a yeah. mastodon of a book. I think I learned on that book that that scale is probably not the best scale for me to do what I like. Yeah. Uh, I think, um, who was it? Somebody, possibly Zadie Smith, talks about scaffolding. Mm. That uh, As a writer, you need all the scaffolding Absolutely. to get the building up. Yeah. And it's very important to you, the scaffolding. But what you must do at the end is before you present it to the public... <laughs> Take the scaffolding down. Take it down. They don't want to see that. They want to see the building. So, yeah, uh, I, I think, you know, it's good for me, perhaps, to know this is the shape of yeah. this. But the reader only needs to feel that here is a coherent building that has structural integrity such that they can walk anywhere in it and it will not collapse. That's all they want to know. How does it work when you're collaborating with, uh, in your case, Dave McKean, mm. who has illustrated all three of your, mm. uh, of your, of your books so far? I don't know, maybe maybe mm. he's going to do t- the, the Tiger books as yeah, well. Yeah, we've but do, been talking about it, yeah. So, so that's the thing. So do, you, do you have a conversation with him uh, early on in the process and you sort of 
you, you, you tell him what, he, what you're up to? Or do you just wait till you've got your final draft and then you pass it over? Right, mate, this is for you. Because it's, 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 in, in, particularly in Phoenix, there's a real sense of the illustrations being embedded as part of the experience. And I would find it hard to believe that you hadn't even sort of had the conversation with him um, uh, until you finished it, because it was such a, such a crucial part of it. Mm, yeah, no, I'm really glad you said that, because it, it's, it has changed. So Dave McKean was one of my heroes. I used to love the comics he did in the 90s. I was just a massive fan of his. And when I got to work with him on Varjak 4, I was so in awe, really, that um, we just gave him a Word document and it came back looking like it does in the book. Beautiful things. Yeah, astonishing, amazing. And, you know, um, so that was uh, one of the nicest things ever. Late on in the writing of Phoenix, uh, I was really struggling with some information and how to present some information. It was the information relating to these beings known as the Twelve Astraeus. The aliens in Phoenix, the AXA, believe the stars are alive and sometimes come down from the sky and walk among us. And when they do, we're dazzled and we call them gods. Uh, They think all the ancient gods in all the mythologies go back to the same twelve stars who come again and again. Uh, So I had characters talking about them and uh, saying, you know, so this one would be Poseidon or Neptune or, you know. Um, Somehow it just wasn't wondrous enough. Mm, I think mm. if you're talking about gods who are really stars, this should be mysterious and luminous and just incredible. And somehow I could never make it work in prose. Every every time I felt this doesn't really communicate the sense of wonder I wanted to have and David Fickling, bless him, very much agreed with that. And and at a certain point, I, I... I think it really was in the very last year, possibly the last six months of working on Phoenix, I I thought, you know what? Trying to write about gods and stars in prose, never going to work. I'm lucky enough to have Dave McKean working on my books. Why don't we just do this visually? Um, So I said to Dave, do you think you could do a series of 12 illustrations that will come at specific points in the text which would depict the ancient gods, all of them, as imagined by some aliens in the future? And he was, oh, yes, yes, I'd love to do it. So, okay. <laughs> Nothing and, could be simpler. Incredibly, he did. And, and I think when I saw what he'd done, yeah, no, I, it was unbelievably yeah. Yeah. emotional because, ah, oh, finally, this does it. Yes. This has the mystery and the wonder and the awe. You may not know, okay, that's Minerva, but who cares? You know there's something powerful here, and that's enough. That's probably all you need to know. So, yes, in the case of Phoenix... I specifically designed this series of interstitial illustrations depicting the Twelve Astraeus for Dave to do. And this, this one would be in, in this section, this one would be in this section. They would all be counted down with Roman numerals. It was even in proofs of the book that I decided it should go from 12 down oh, to 1 rather yes, than from 1 right. to 12, giving it a countdown yes, feel to the nice. end of all days. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it was, it, was, it was... Right to the wire. Everything right gets, the wire. gets changed Kept and tweaked. And, yep. and yeah. actually, not to spoiler the book for those who've not read it, what Dave produced with um, what we might broadly describe as the 13th Astraeus not anything I had suggested, it just, that's the genius of Dave. Yeah. So when I saw that, it was really like, I just cried. It was like, oh, that's amazing. <laughs> you know, so, and that, yeah, that's the moment. That's a proper collaboration at that point, I think. That's, you know, I've put something into it, he's put something into it, and then it's just ignited, I think. And to me, it's impossible to imagine that book 
having different illustrations or having no illustrations. It's again, though, notice, all trial and error. I tried so hard to make it work in prose, and it didn't, and it didn't, and it didn't. And then it, almost in desperation, I was like, okay, forget prose. <laughs> what about pictures? And then I was like, oh, and then you could have song fragments. So I really love those little song fragments. Yes, yes. Um, I think they're very, very interesting. And they went through drafts. I was looking at my old notebooks the other day. There are like at least four different versions of them. Uh, and in each one, they find their form a little bit better. You're talking about the, the, the process of collaborating with Dave McKean, David Fickling. You and your, your companions create it, and it echoes what happens in the books, where you have your, your, your lonely hero figure who, who sort of fights their way to the end, but can, can only actually achieve success by teaming up with, you know, with the tried and trusted mm. companions. And it's, um, I don't know, it somehow seems very appropriate the way you were describing it there. Oh, well, that's a lovely thing to hear. It, it, I mean, it is a bit like that. And there are, there's a small number of people who, you know, read the book in drafts whose feedback you couldn't do it without, you know. Yeah. The, you can only go so far on your own as a writer, I think. Uh, certainly I can only go so far. I'm pretty perfectionist, don't get me wrong, you know. I, I think I get quite a long way on my own. But then when I show other people and they're like, this is terrible, um, <laughs> you, it just pushes you to go further. And, like, can you imagine an athlete getting to Olympic level without a coach yeah. pushing them harder? Yeah. Probably not. But you need coaches, trainers, mentors, it's just, it's allies. A, yeah, it's a weird thing, isn't it? Because it, it has to come from you. and It has, it to, be, it has to be your self-discipline. Organic to you. It has to be organic to you. Yeah. You've got to listen to your own inspiration. You've got to develop your talents. And you also have to be open to the correct voices around you. Not any old voice, but it has to be voices that, that, that somehow mesh with yours and, and bring it to fruition. The really crucial thing here is that idea that it has to be organic to you. Where editors have been most helpful to me is essentially where they have gone, I have a problem with this, I think you can do this better. Yeah. But it's then for you to identify how to do it. I remember David Fickling saying at one point, the Phoenix, I think your aliens need to be more alien. Initially, I've written the aliens as being very starry. They have this kind of beautiful, luminescent skin. Um, I started thinking about alienness and what, yes. what are we talking yes. about when we talk about alienness? Really, we're talking about difference and otherness in our own world, I think. You know? So I'm really happy with the way my aliens are now. I feel they do say a number of interesting things about difference and otherness in our own world. And I've heard from many readers, yeah. particularly in schools, that they've had discussions about Islamophobia and anti-Semitism on the back of reading Phoenix. Fantastic. That makes me so happy. That would never have happened if David Fickling hadn't said, your aliens need to be more aliens. So, you know, even though you may feel upset in the moment when somebody says to you, uh, I don't know about this, if you can just go with it and go, all right, how could I make this better? What am I trying to do and how could that be done better? What is it I'm really going for here? Then you might end up with something fantastic. SF Said, thank you very much. Do you think SF stands for something fantastic? I think it ought to. <laughs> <laughs>I really enjoyed talking with SF, who didn't complain once about the fact that he'd had to spend half an hour squatting with me on a drafty staircase. And it was great to be reassured that sometimes, creatively, the best things take time to get right. So with that in mind, I'm going off now to do a bit more scribbling. Until next time, thank you very much for listening.